it. Just who is this one-man army? His name is Hopalong Cassidy. Here he comes, here he comes. There's the trumpets, there's the drums, here he comes. Hopalong Cassidy, here he comes. Wild West. A great open space filled with wonderful stories that fires our imagination. Tales of adventure, dashing heroes, epic romances, camaraderie and bravery that sometimes makes us wish for another time. Well, we have such a tale, a western hero with adventures, and it could only have come out of Hollywood. But this is a true story of how Hobalong Cassidy, a fictional character, became real. How he cast a spell on its author, transformed the actor who portrayed him, and inspired a world that embraced him. Stick around, partners, you're going to like it. It was just incredible. I, nothing like it had happened before, nothing's like it happened since, basically. I know it's an incredible, it's an incredible story, what he did with it. <laughs> Long before such things as Star Wars mania, Beatle mania, or even Elvis mania, there was a happening known affectionately as Hoppy mania. How's yours, Pete? I'll give you a bite of mine if you give me a bite of yours. Come on. You're not going to play? How's yours, Pete? Five. Okay. Didn't we have a big... Oh, you want to give me a bite of yours? Okay. All yours is much better. Then this dried out as this one. Taste this one. Hopalong Cassidy toured the world twice and was greeted by over 20 million children and their parents. He was the first merchandising phenomenon, grossing more in today's dollars than current giant merchandising stars. Yet Hopalong didn't swivel his hips or conquer faraway galaxies. Now, William Boyd's portrayal of a silver-haired cowboy simply rode across the West and stood for good and honest living and everybody loved him for it. Do that. Where I come from, men don't go around slapping little boys. Let him go. Well, I didn't mean any harm, mister. But of course, if you're asking for it... I'll get even with you for kicking my dog. Get back to your wagon, sonny. Come on. Yes, now get moving, all of you. You ain't seen the last of me yet, mister. Anytime you say. William Boyd was a striking figure. Let's go right to the basics here. He was a good-looking man who didn't look like any other Western hero. That silver hair, those chiseled features, and he was dressed all in black. No other cowboy dressed that way. He was absolutely charismatic. Everything went together. His, his face, his eyes, his body, his voice. He was just hoppy. And I think it wasn't just one thing. It appealed to women. Very much so, I know. I kid about it now. I thought I used to have to beat him off with a club. But <laughs> the men loved him. Men loved him. They respected him. They believed in those values. And he not only portrayed those values, but he lived them. Yeah, well, that's true, Grace. But you know, most of us only know Hopalong Cassidy through actor William Boyd's wonderful portrayal. But long before Boyd's version, there was a very different hobby forming in the imagination of a shy young clerk named Clarence Mulford. Mulford was an avid Western historian and dreamed of the West like many of his time from the safety of his New York home. He wrote his first short story of the Bar 20 Ranch and its cowboys way back in 1905. If the truth be known, he embedded a very different Hopalong Cassidy into the minds of millions of Americans. He had his character, of course, as Hopalong Cassidy, which was this 
little old man, and he looked like a farmer because he had his sleeves rolled up. And this cowboy never rolls his sleeves up. But anyway, and he had the red hair, and he had a kind of a long mustache, droopy, and he chewed tobacco, and he smoked, and he fooled around with women. You know, William Boyd's friends would have said that these were traits, ironically, very close to Boyd's own heart. He was every inch the hoppy of Mulford's novels. A good man who never said no to a fight, who enjoyed his liquor and his women in very large quantities. Well, fortunately for Boyd, he had plenty of money to enjoy his lifestyle. Raised in working class conditions, Boyd struck it rich when he turned to acting in the 1920s with such successful films as The Volga Boatman, Yankee Clipper, The Leathernecks, and The Flying Fool. By 1926-27, William Boyd was a major star. He was a leading man, good-looking guy, uh, very virile, uh, very popular. Married four times, he just loved his reputation as a wild playboy. He often said that his 22-room Beverly Hills mansion was just too cramped, too small for him and his party friends. In the early 1930s, party time suddenly stopped for Boyd when his wild ways came back to haunt him. Four years before the Hop Along series began, Boyd's career took a nosedive. All because of a very simple mix-up. Oh, that oh, that, oh, that was a tragedy. That was terrible. There was an, a stage actor named William Boyd came out to pictures, to make pictures. And so there was that confusion, and it be, he became William Stage Boyd. And what happened was this William Stage Boyd was a very bad character and he got himself into a lot of trouble and he was he was he was busted for having drugs and a wild party when it came out the reporters got the hold of the story and they sent it in and it was front page story and they had used Bill's picture there was a boilerplate clause in most contracts called a morals clause I don't know when it was first inserted into contracts, but it was there. And if you, and it was mainly meant to deal with actors who would sometimes live it up a little too much, and uh, if they ever got caught in a scandal, the studio had the right and the ability to just cut them off. He had just signed a million-dollar contract with RKO, and he went in the next day and they said, Sorry. Morals clause. You can't do anything about it, and they tore up the contract. You cannot retract a picture. You can retract a story, but they cannot retract a picture. But uh, anyway, that was a very that was a very bad part in his life. After the plug got pulled on his career, you could even watch year by year and see a list of his films and see him working for smaller and smaller studios because when he was blacklisted. Uh, the major studios wouldn't touch him anymore, and he had to work for these itty-bitty fly-by-night companies. There's one called Invincible Pictures. I mean, these were hole-in-the-wall studios. Uh, they didn't even have their own studios. And it was a real come-down for somebody who'd been as big a star as he had, who made as much money as he had. To be working for these cheapies was, was a, a pretty low blow. His life was, uh, well, I guess you'd say, out of control. On one film, he got so drunk he couldn't remember any scenes he had shot the day before. Boyd was an intelligent guy, he was smart enough, and he knew something had to change. Maybe it was the unnerving realization of just how fickle fame is. Maybe it was the reality that he was turning 40 and no longer the romantic leading man. Or maybe it was simply the memory of his much-loved father that finally turned him around. I think he was around 12 or so. He moved, they moved to uh, Tulsa. The father was foreman of this crew, and there was a, an explosion. The father went in to rescue one of the men and was killed. So yes, he was a hero, and uh, Bill 
adored his father. He, he loved his father very much, and it was a big blow. It was a big blow to him. And yes, I suppose that, yes, that would make an impression on, on a young boy to be, to do the same, kind of do the same thing, be a hero. In 1935, Boyd intuitively saw an opportunity to play a hero when he was handed a particular script. He was asked to read for the part of an easygoing foreman of the Bar 20 Ranch, Buck Peters. After going through the script, Boyd told Sherman that he was only interested in one role. I want to play Hopalong Cassidy. I like his name, and I think kids will like it too. But I want to play him differently than in the book. When Bill came along and gave his interpretation of what he wanted to do with Hopalong Cassidy, Mulford was furious. He was, oh, he was absolutely furious. And he let everybody know he was furious. It was a terrible thing to do to his character. Well, unfortunately for Boyd, film producer Harry Puff Sherman, who had purchased the film rights to the novels, agreed with the irate Mulford, and he brushed off Boyd with an adamant no. As Sherman had every intention of keeping Mulford's version of Hopalong as a ornery son of a gun. He offered the role to funny man James Gleason, known for playing grumpy, cantankerous characters. What if casting questions are always interesting? What if somebody had played this part instead of somebody who finally played the part? And there's hundreds of good examples. Hoppy's a real good one because they were thinking of using James Gleason, who was a very well-known, very popular character actor, uh, but a wiry, feisty, little Irish-American type, about as different from Bill Boyd as you could, as you could get and about as unlikely a Western hero as you could ever imagine. In fact, it's hard to imagine him in the part, and yet, if it had been played the way Mulford wrote him, as a kind of a rough-hewn, rough-talking guy, Gleason might have been right. It just would have been an entirely different hobby. <laughs> Things quickly changed when Paramount Pictures heard Boyd was interested in the series. On one hand, Boyd's name still meant something, at least in B-movies. He'd been a genuine star with a huge following. And that scandal, well, that was water under the bridge four years ago. On the other hand, Gleason was, well, without a doubt, a wonderful character actor, but he had no marquee value. The rest, as they say, is history. You're hurt. What's the matter, Phil? You darn fool. It's all your fault. Oh, it's Bill, just I... a scratch. What are you doing, old lady? Hey, what are you doing out of bed? I'll tell you when you can get up. Now, if it hadn't been for your care, old timer, I mightn't have ever got up. Oh, let me help you. Well, I can hop along by myself. Oh, hop along, Cassidy, that's me. You're a better man with one leg than the whole outfit put together. Red took the words right out of my mouth. Now that he was successful again, he could afford to laugh at the adversity that had plagued him. <laughs> well, it would be that distinctive laughter of his that would play a huge part in transforming him from a, a scoundrel to an upstanding citizen. It was May 1937. A friend arranged a blind date for Boyd with a young actress named Grace Bradley. Oh, what a number she was. That wonderful laugh was, I think, the most recognizable thing that you could hear. You wouldn't have to see him. You would hear that. I had just come back from location on a picture and I had a telephone call. And he introduced himself as William Boyd. He was inviting me to a small party he was having at his Malibu home. And I was playing it very cool because everybody who knew me knew I had this mad crush on him all these years. And then many times I'd had call. You know, this is William Boyd, I sure you are. Uh, until I said something and he laughed. And... Uh, and the laugh, I mean, you could not, you could not fake that. You could not repeat it. <laughs> oh, 
that laugh, I knew, and of course what happened was I froze. I absolutely froze. I couldn't get anything out. I was going, you know. Picture that this film comes out in the late 1920s, and there's a 13-year-old schoolgirl in Brooklyn, New York, who is so enamored of this leading man, William Boyd, that she has one of those school tablets that they used to put out with movie star picture on the, on the front. And she would write his name on the tablet. How could it happen, except in a Hollywood movie, how could it happen that that little girl would grow up, move to Hollywood, go out on a date with that same actor... When he came in, uh, he said, <laughs> well, what he said was, for a hot second, he didn't know whether mother <laughs> was me or not. Uh, but then he realized that I, I was upstairs, and he said he saw me. And he said he saw the feet, and then he saw the legs, and then he saw the body, and then he saw the face. He was down the, the foot of the stairs with mother, and when I got down the stairs, he put out his arms, and I walked right into him. Uh, uh, so, yeah, yeah, he probably saw I was out of my mind. I get emotional, but it was it was very special. And uh, yes, otherwise, and then it went very well. Funky little cut. Yeah, uh, kind of pretty too, don't you think? Oh, I hadn't noticed, huh? Hey, she is kind of easy to look at. Oh, he's not ripe to get hooked. Not much. He proposed the third night, and three weeks to the day we met, we were married. Grace loves to tell the story that Bill later admitted to her that he really wanted to propose to her on the first date, but he couldn't for the simple reason that his divorce papers hadn't come through. He got them the next day, and then he felt free to propose to her. Well, it wasn't just his laugh and charisma that made the series a hit. Boyd and producer Harry Sherman insisted on quality. I love the early Hoppy movies because they were made with real class, real style. The, those Lone Pine locations are fabulous, and they have great photography. Uh, the casts, the supporting casts, are of a higher caliber than you tended to get in a lot of the other B-Westerns. Everything about the films just seemed a little more substantial than what you would expect from a, a typical Saturday matinee movie. Not so good, huh? Well, I guess I never was cut out to play a guitar. I thought all cowboys played guitars. Oh, no. Not the ones from the Bar 20. There was a, a craze, a phenomenon hitting the Western, which of course was the singing cowboy. Gene Autry really turned that around, and then just a few years after Gene established himself at Republic Pictures, along came Roy Rogers. Uh, and in the wake of the two of them, there were a whole flock of singing cowboys. They weren't just stop and sing a song and then, you know, have a fight or go on, do it that way with no story. He was interested in the story. And that's why they were different, because they were set in the 1890s, they were not modern westerns. They had no radios. They had none of that. And these were serious uh, stories. The screenwriters often added a grittiness that, well, it even made the censors wince. Whew. Boyd was the first one to acknowledge that essential to the series' success was his co-stars. Forty-year-old Boyd didn't want to play the romantic lead, and he was smart enough to leave that role to a younger actor. Miss Sally, did, did anybody ever tell you that you was right, Purdy? Lots of people. Usted are a mucho pretty senorita, senorita. What's the matter, Ranger? Don't you speak English? James Ellison was the first young hero. This combination allowed for a father-son relationship to form on screen, a theme that was very important to Boyd's vision of Hoppy. I guess I missed my step. Now the kid's in trouble again. <laughs> we had no right to interfere. This was Mr. Cassidy's dance. Don't mind him, ma'am. You know, when Johnny dances, he's got more feet than a centipede. Well, if you'd rather dance with Mr. Cassidy, I'll get out. I don't have to be told when I'm not wanted. 
Well, certainly, and Boyd also wanted a comic sidekick for Hoppy, so, well, who better than George Gabby Hayes? <laughs> now, i got to tip my hat to Hayes for his professionalism. To look older than his actual 50 years, you know what he did? Well, first of all, he grew a beard, and then he had his last remaining teeth pulled out so he could gum it. <laughs> That's commitment, folks. Cheyenne Chief knocked all my teeth out in a hand-to-hand duel. So that, that happened at the Battle of Bull's Tail. Did I ever tell you how I captured 50 wild Indians in a hand-to-hand battle all by myself? No. How'd you do it? Surrounded them. So you told the truth for once. Why, well, I never told a lie in her life, did I? Yeah. Well, maybe once. And this is Windy Hallett, the best rider, the best fighter, the best shooter, and the biggest liar in the whole territory. Was your train ever held up by bandits? Yeah. Why well, went so fast they'd say, here he comes. There he goes. How old are you? Thirty-two. <laughs> What's all the yelling about here, huh? If that guy's thirty-two, I'm a hyena. <laughs> uh, what's that? Actually, the first picture, I guess, he was what, Uncle Ben. And then, uh, actually, that was it. He just had that part, but Bill fell in love with him. He thought it was great. He wanted to bring him back, and I remember Pop Sherman saying, he's been killed, you can't do that. And they gave him another name, Wendy, and even though he wasn't with the Hoppies the whole time, he was still a very close personal friend. Of course, Russell, Russell Hayden, he wasn't the first of the Luckies, but he went on through most of those, uh, the hour-long ones. Hayden was a well-liked production assistant on the Hoppy set. He had no acting experience, but he sure could ride a horse. Sherman offered to increase his salary from $100 to $1,000 per picture. And like any smart cowboy, he saddled up. Think of me. No, it wasn't that. It was. Uh, well, uh, yes, go on. Well, it was the candlelight shining through your hair, kind of lighting your face. And, and, no, I'll tell you. Tell you tomorrow. Oh, California, you look so pretty in the dark. Is that what you think of me, Hoppy? Well, uh. Uh, you're beautiful with the firelight in your hair uh, shining through your whiskers. Uh, Hoppy. Or, well, maybe I'd better tell you about it in the morning, huh? Oh, shucks. Tell me now. <laughs> and then later, of course, he had Andy Clyde, who also became a close personal friend. Andy Clyde had been a featured comedian for the great Max Sennett starting in the 1920s and had starred in his own short subject series continuously since, uh, I guess, the late 1920s on, from silence right into the talkies. The big sticker out of his hands, and then we went at it with our bare fists. No. Yeah. I polished him off with a sock to the chin, jarred his liver roast with a left, and then I singed his whiskers with a right just like this. Well, sir... <laughs> Were you trying to eat that? Uh-oh. That better? Oh, much. Now, let that be a lesson to you. You've got the appetite of a horse and the jaws of a chicken. <laughs> sure, because you wouldn't want to catch the scurvy. No. The last time I had the scurvy... Yeah, happened. I know. The last time you had the scurvy, you died. Yep. I died. Mm. <laughs> a Boyd and Sherman knew that any hero is only as good as the villain he's trying to outwit, and they called on some of the finest character actors in Hollywood to join the Hoppy family. And the audiences just loved them, enjoyed seeing them again and again and again. Brent Wood, Brad King, Rand Brooks, William Duncan, Billy King, Lee J. Cobb, Roy Barcroft, Morris Ankrum, and Victor Joy certainly the biggest name ever to come out of uh, the Hoppy movies was Robert Mitchum. 
who started working in small parts in the early 1940s and then became a featured regular in the series. This is the only kind of passport we issue. Now turn around and get out. We're Texas Rangers and we have authority to enter any town in the state. Nobody enters Silver Bullet without a warrant from Sheriff Krebs. Did he give you a warrant to shoot a Mexican in the back? He never disparaged his early days, and he was very fond of Bill Boyd and very fond of Grace Boyd, too. Boyd wasn't surprised by the amount of fan mail his co-stars received, but he was surprised by a scene-stealing star of the four-legged kind. I remember, okay, there's so many things for Topper. He was such an angel. He found me, and he found Topper the same year. He found me first, and then, I don't guess it was about three months later. So we went out and we were at this ranch where they had some horses and we saw Topper and he was beautiful. But he was that way, he would pose and he did it once. You know, get the, the front legs out and the back end. He's so beautiful. He's all posed. And one time he went too far. He went too far and he fell over. <laughs> And if you've ever seen an embarrassed horse, that was it. He actually blushed. You could see the color. You could see. And he got up and he was... Nobody saw that, did they? <laughs> Filmmakers often say that the right setting or location of a movie is as valuable as any character in the cast. And Boyd made sure that the Hopalong films had many stunning and dramatic locations. It was just one more element that separated it from other westerns of the time. This was another effort of authenticity of the Old West that Boyd and Sherman sought. And fans and critics alike appreciated it. Lone Pine, four hours north of Los Angeles, was used so many times in the Hoppy films that it eventually got its own screen credit. Boyd and Sherman's efforts to bring all these unique elements together finally paid off. Hopalong Cassidy became one of the most popular Western series of the 1930s. But Boyd wasn't satisfied to rest on his success. He wanted to add another aspect that he knew would appeal to his younger audience. So you know what he did? <laughs> That's right. He introduced boys into the storyline. Now listen here. If you're going to take a man's place... You're going to have to do a man's work. Guess I shouldn't have talked that way back there at the post office. Well, a fellow's got a right to his own opinion, ain't he? Yeah, I guess so, but he ought to do a little figures where his friends are concerned. Ah, oh, forget it. Come on. But don't go setting your cap for Hoppy. I don't think he likes girls. For all of Hopalong's gentle chiding and moralizing... <laughs> I got to tell you, he wasn't opposed to being a stern authority figure to those that he cared about. I'll get the saddle off that horse. Say something. Say something or I'll bash your brains in. Don't, Hoppy, don't. I'm not lying to you, honest. Oh, I'm sorry, Hoppy. Let's call it quits. Sure, we'll call it quits. When I've evened things up with you. You've had a spanking coming for a long time, and I'm going to give it to you. If you do, I'll tell Uncle Buck to fire you. Yeah, well, it'll be worth losing my job just to reform you. Boyd, he wasn't interested in creating a character that was destined for sainthood. He wanted to make him real and human. Hopalong had to be flawed, someone who was big enough to admit when he was wrong. I'm sorry for the way I acted, Hoppy. I know why you didn't want me riding out here. Oh, forget it. We all make mistakes once in a while. You know, Hoppy? Yeah? I've been a pig-headed fool. It takes a mighty good man to admit that, Sheriff. I... I, I guess I've been just about the biggest fool in the world. But you're not the first nor the last. I've done pretty well myself at times. <laughs> <laughs> And we've also been pretty stupid. Yep, we sure have. Me too. We'll find out. What does sundown usually bring? Supper. You too. 
If years ago, Boyd had painted a perfect picture of his life, he was now living it. He had a beautiful and loving wife in grace. He had long ago stopped womanizing, drinking, and brawling. He was making a good living that afforded him a sprawling ranch at the beach and a Beverly Hills home. By 1945, he had been in the saddle for 10 years, had completed an unprecedented 50 feature films as Hoppy. The reviews were still good, and his loyal fans wanted more. But times were changing. Because of rising film costs, profits were slipping. Paramount Pictures no longer wanted to distribute the series, and producer Sherman began to get a hankering to do something else. As an actor... Well, Boyd was fast coming to a crossroads. He felt that he had this character that he had created, uh, which was perfectly natural for him. And in in other words, he was playing Hoppy, and he was Hoppy. You'll find it right in that pocket. Can I hold this for you? Yes. What are you doing up here? Running from trouble. What trouble? I tore a man's arm off and beat him to death with it. What for? For asking questions. So he thought this would be something that he could contribute, that he could do some good with, and he could—he was willing to spend the rest of his life doing that. Next to my dad, I guess Hopalong Cassidy's the greatest film I ever heard of. You know, I'll bet Cassidy would be awful happy if you knew you felt that way about him. Well, I do. Marshall Holliday says he's the best gunfighter in the whole world. He's fair and he's square. And always helping folks when somebody's picking on him. That's what I'm going to try to be like when I grow up. That's a good idea, son. I mean the part about giving the other fellow an even break. Always playing square and helping folks when they need you. You'll never go far wrong so long as you got ideas like that. An unexpected call came from the great Gone with the Wind producer, David Selznick, offering Boyd the leading role in his upcoming movie, Duel in the Sun. (laughs) i got to tell you, it was a lucrative deal that many other leading actors would have given their right arm for, but not Boyd. And it forced him to look hard at what he really wanted to do with his life. When he refused the part, David Selznick called me and try to get me to convince him to do the part. And it was a terrible character. You know, he's awful. And it was, of course, it was a great acting thing, but he didn't want to do it. No, he refused to do it. He would not do another part because he wanted to keep the image of, of Hoppy. And he said, no, I won't do anything else. He said, this is what I want to do. Fate had somehow pushed Boyd to the only decision he knew he had to make. He had to try and buy and own the Hopalong character. Boyd approached producer Sherman and offered to buy all 54 films they'd made together. And he was shocked when Sherman said yes. It would cost him (laughs) $350,000. That's a chunk of money in those days. We sold the ranch, um... Just lock, stock, and barrel. Everything there didn't take a thing out of it. It took us three and a half years, and literally every quarter we had to get those rights because we were picking up options, comic strips, music, radio, merchandise. Well, obviously, Boyd needed to meet author Clarence Mulford's attorney on the East Coast, who, with great foresight, had withheld television rights in 1935. So we had to get to him to talk him into it. Anyway, we had to get back to New York, and we didn't have the money to get back to New York. And the only thing we had was the car. We had the Cadillac. And Bill went to the Bank of America and got $2,000 on the car, and we got back to New York. You know, friends of Boyd started to wonder whether his obsession with owning the rights to Hopalong might actually send him to the sanitarium. Well, this is where a good woman comes in, as evidenced by what Boyd said later of his wife. Grace first gave me love, then loyalty, then inspiration. And when others turned me down and thought I was crazy getting rights, she saw me through it all. We were basically just as happy together when we didn't have a quarter 
So we knew there wasn't anything like that. And so whatever he did, I thought it was the right thing to do. After nearly four years of struggling and legal wrangling, Boyd owned the Hopalong character. It was finally his. From that time, Boyd never stopped working. He had formed a company with another producer who helped finance 12 more Hopalong movies. The budgets were a lot less. Boyd took a smaller salary that went straight to the purchase of those other rights. He had now shot a total of 66 Hopalong movies. No actor in the history of cinema has portrayed a single character in so many feature films. This was a literary character, and that basically had never been done before. Uh, an actor taking a literary character and make it his own. It's just kind of a melding of the two. It was 1948, and Boyd was now 53 years old. How many more hobby movies could he realistically make? It was a question Boyd seriously pondered. The new movies did quite well, and the older ones were again playing to Saturday matinee crowds. But finances were tight. He now lived in a modest four-room house in the Hollywood Hills. Had Boyd risked everything and come up short? Well, he had an idea, an inkling that this new gadget television was important. But how important? <laughs> I don't think he had any idea. When Howdy Doody went on the air in 1948, it was the only show on the air in the afternoons. There was nothing else on TV. When you came home, and if you were a kid waiting for Howdy Doody and you turned on the set a half hour early, you got an Indian head test pattern for a half hour till Howdy Doody finally went on the air. <laughs> oh, yes, because we didn't know. I mean, as far as we know, television was uh, all uh, live. And, uh, yeah, we had pu we pulled up to a burger place, a drive-in, and there was a cameraman pulled in next to us, whom we knew, and Bill was talking with him, and he said, can you run film through a television camera? I said, well, sure, sure you can. KTLA, which was the first television station to establish itself in Los Angeles, it was Division of Paramount Studios, went on the air and needed programming. And an innovative guy named Klaus Lanzmann, who ran the station, was willing to try Hopalong Cassidy. We know what happened, and it just exploded. Yeah, it was just incredible, incredible. By 1950, when it really exploded, you know, he had the cover of Life and Look and Saturday Evening Post. Forty-six percent of his viewers were adults. Television stations were clamoring to get Hoppy on the air. TV Guide hailed Hopalong as a kind of television savior, stating... Stations were desperate to air anything other than local wrestling matches and sports. Then from out of the West rode a man with a cure-all for station owners' problems. He was Bill Boyd, Hobbelong Cassidy. Television was just the beginning. I remember when the uh, comic strip started in the Daily News in New York. The building was at 42nd Street. And it started in the morning, it was bitter cold, and the wind was blowing, and there they were, there were mothers with babies in their arms, there were all men and women and children, and we're greeting people, touching them, and being kissed by them, by men, you know, with a very enthusiastic little Italian man or something coming up with a, you know, goofy mustache and grabbing Bill and just kissing him right on the mouth. <laughs> this went on all the time. Everybody said, how can he do this? How can he do it physically? Uh, and he said later, he said later I get strength from them. They give me the strength. No one, least of all, Bill Boyd and his wife Grace could have anticipated the kind of mob scenes that Hoppy would generate. I mean, once the show was on TV and it was popular and it got on the covers of magazines and all that, everyone knew it was successful. But it's one thing to know it's successful or hear it's successful, and it's quite another to have it demonstrated so tangibly, to have this endless lineup of kids and their parents just dying to meet meet you in person. I can't, I can't imagine what it must have been like. 
1950, Boyd was asked how it felt to be Hopalong Cassidy. His reply was sincere. Every kid wants to grow up to be happy. Every man in the United States has sometime or other wanted to be happy. Riding the range, cleaning up the bad guys, and sitting around the campfire. All I can do is thank the kids, young and old alike, for giving me this opportunity of living the life of a great guy like Hoppy. You know, I kind of like that boy of yours. He kind of likes you too, Hoppy. Well, I hope I never do anything to make him change his mind. I don't think you could. Boyd might never have wanted to disappoint his fans, but what about Hoppy's original creator, author Clarence Mulford? Boyd had been playing Hopalong for over 15 years, and the two had never met. Up to 1942, Mulford had still been writing and publishing new Hopalong novels. In spite of the success of the Hoppy movies, Mulford never wavered from his rough and tumble version of Hoppy. He complained often, Well, if my Hoppy ever really looked like that purdied up movie version, well, I'm afraid even old pals Johnny Nelson and Buck Peters would have shot him dead. <laughs> Boyd had known from day one of Mulford's hostility, but decided to meet him anyway. He recognized that without Mulford's original ideas, there would be no hoppy. He wanted to thank him. So we went back east, we got on the trains, a little to Freiburg, Maine. And he got off the train, and there was Mulford standing on the platform there waiting. And, and Bill said, gosh, I don't know if I can say this, but, but he said, Hi, you old son of a bitch, how are you? <laughs> and Mulford collapsed. Mulford loved him from that minute on. He was so excited, and his, all the children came to his house, you know, and he loved it. He was converted. He loved Bill to the day he died. Boyd continued to travel. From 1949 to 1951, he met an estimated 13 million children from Alaska to South America. Not only did they want to meet and be like him, they wanted to look like him. Hoppy mania had begun. There were, what, 2,400 items which he approved definitely approved uh, because there was a they wanted bubble gum he would not have bubble gum because he didn't he didn't like bubble gum he didn't think it was good i guess people think that merchandising is a fairly recent phenomenon everything is marketed so aggressively nowadays but i don't think even star wars has as many different pieces of merchandising as hoppy did everything from cottage cheese and milk to uh, hair trainer oil to bicycles. Over $100 million of hoppy goods were sold in 1950 alone. Now that translates in nearly half a billion dollars in today's money. And it could have been more if Boyd had not rejected hundreds of products because of quality or safety considerations. No pointed or sharp items at all. His comic strip was in 200 newspapers. Time magazine reported that 15 million comic books were sold in 1949. Hopalong even had his own weekly radio show. The ring of the silver spurs heralds the most amazing man ever to ride the ferries of the early west. Hopalong Cassidy. The same Hoppy you cheer in motion pictures. And the same California you've laughed at a million times. There was this Hoppy land, which is then like a miniature Disneyland kind of thing with the little rides and all the other things for children. And it was a wonderful setup. Hoppy mania spread like wildfire around the world. Yes, it's Hopalong Cassidy himself, Bill Boyd, cowboy film hero to three generations of kids, arriving in Britain with his wife for a fortnight stay. Hoppy's only been here once before. Then he was escorting 48 British and 48 American boys on a tour of the British Isles. Hopalong and his wife, Tripalong, her real name's Grace, are so busy being fairy godparents to half a million children, they don't often get a holiday. So now they've come to see Britain for themselves. That is, if the kids will give them any time to themselves. The reception committee are members of the 12,000-strong Posse Club. 
Duffy celebrated two dates on the way over, his 62nd birthday and his 20th wedding anniversary. He and Tripalong have no children of their own. Or perhaps it's more true to say they have many thousands. Boyd commented, Sometimes I, I can feel hands all over me when I get home. But you know, they do it because they're Hoppy's friends. Well, some might have had other reasons to reach out and touch him, especially after one particular story got out. Bill was uh, on the uh, street one day in Bellevue Hills, and he was walking out, and Dorothy Moore's mother met him. She told him about the son who was in the hospital in a coma. So Hoppy came right back home and changed into the Hoppy outfit and went to the hospital. Bill said, hi there, partner. One of those of you just greeted him. And he opened his eyes. He opened his eyes and he said, Hoppy. And, of course, everybody fell down. But it was the power of that just love, I guess. (laughs) Yes, sir. Here to greet Hoppy is Ridgely Howard, son of Dorothy Lamore and Bill Howard. This is Rich, Dottie Lamore's little boy, isn't it? Huh? What is your last name? Howard, isn't it? Howard. That's it. And what have you got on your wrist here? Where did you get that? Well, Boyd certainly woke the boy out of a coma, but it was a blood transfusion by a family friend of the Lamores that saved him. Some hobby fans were not always interested in such details. The crowds kept growing. Women in particular wanted Hoppy to touch their children. I remember the one case where it really scared the devil out of me. It was New Orleans, and it was Mardi Gras time, which is wild. Anyway, I mean, that is just crazy. The people just swarmed, and there were women with little babies in their arms. They had literally thrown the child at Hoppy. I don't know how he got out of it alive. Boyd was genuinely confounded. They hold up little babies to Hoppy, their own flesh and blood. What do these babies know of Hoppy? Nothing. But these men and women want Hoppy to meet them. It was such an awesome responsibility, basically. You know, and you were aware of that all the time. Boyd wouldn't keep any public appearance fees. He donated it to a local children's charity or hospitals. As part of promoting his merchandise, Boyd would visit department stores in the cities he toured. Just to show you the man's character, he once punched out a store manager who tried to force kids to buy toys in exchange for meeting their hero. I'm telling you, this sent a very clear message that he wasn't going to tolerate any mistreatment of his young fans. I think it was Atlanta. And there, of course, the the color barrier was still there. So they had two separate lines. They had lines of the white children and lines of the black children. And he said, what is that? And they said, well, they come in different lines. He said, oh, no, they don't. He said, they're children, they come together. And he said, well, we can't do that. And he said, well, if you don't do it, I'm gone. And they got them together, and they came through together. And that was the first and only time I think that happened for a number of years. A noted psychologist at the time discussing the Hoppy phenomenon wrote, Hobbelong is more than just a character. Today, with a world teetering on the brink of nuclear disaster, we instinctively reach out for some semblance of security. Hoppy reassures us that justice always triumphs. And parents recognized Hoppy's influence and were more and more looking to him for guidance. What am I going to do with him, Hoppy? He just won't mind. I don't know. You got nobody to blame but yourself, ma'am. He wasn't like this when he first come out here. It seemed like you and Buck and everybody else around here went out of their way to spoil a fella that had the makings of a good man in him. Well, why don't you try talking to him, Hoppy? You know, you've always been able to handle him. Well, what do you want? You don't like me anymore, do you, Hoppy? You got me all wrong there, son. I like you a lot. That is, I like the boy you was when you first come out here. 
Well, supposing people were always making you do things you didn't want to, how would you like it? Well, if he was good for me, I'd try to like doing them. I know you'd ride him, Hoppy. I had done it myself. You hadn't. Yeah. I wish Carson could have seen that. Why'd you let him make you look like a tenderfoot? Well, if I'd have done it today, I'd have been showing off. You and me don't do things like that, do we? Not us. Gosh, Mr. Casty must be able to do just about everything better than anybody else. Well, if he can't, I've sure wasted a lot of time learning him how to do things. I don't know how many, how many telephone calls. They would be the sheriff or they would be the chief of police of some town, wherever, calling Hoppy and telling him either that they had used his name on some young boy who was doing what he shouldn't do, whatever. And he said, you could see, you could see the change in their expression. And they really thought about it. They really thought about it then. And I think it, uh, yeah, I think it probably changed a lot of, a lot of the kids' outlook. Well, in case you wondered why you haven't seen any on-camera interviews of William Boyd, it's simple. He declined to do them. He figured if he had anything to say, Hoppy had said it in his films. Hi there, little friends. This is just a thought about guns. I was doing a scene one time in one of the pictures, and the boy that was working with me was twirling his gun on his hand and playing with it. I said, what are you doing with that gun, Lucky? He said, I was just playing with it. I said, those things are not to play with. They kill people. So watch your guns, children. Be careful with them, won't you? Don't ever call a policeman a cop. He doesn't like it, and it doesn't sound good. Respect him as he does you. Call him a police officer. To see how much nicer he'll be. Friends, you know I've had a lot of letters in the last six or eight months about you not wearing your raincoats and your overshoes. Now the reason you don't see Hoppy in a raincoat and overshoes is that I live in a country where there isn't too much rain. But you must always, when it is raining, wear your raincoats and your overshoes. And there's one more thought too. Don't leave them at the schoolhouse. Bring them home, will you? He used those because he was getting such response from the parents. It was doing so much good. They wouldn't listen to their mother or the dad, but they'd listen to Hoppy. American Weekly magazine agreed. Today, more children are influenced by Hoppy's code than any other single factor in America. Hoppy's code was written for his two million-plus troopers. They included down-to-earth, good old-fashioned common-sense views such as the highest badge of honor a person can wear is honesty. Be truthful at all times. Your parents are your best friends you have. The demand for anything hoppy was so great that Boyd had to squeeze in time to create and star in a brand-new Hopalong Cassidy television series. The last ones are the ones solely for television. Those half-hour ones were made like in 52, 53. But they were playing all over the world, and they kept rotating. There was, what, 106 altogether. The original hour-longs made for the theaters, and then the uh, television one. Charlie is not what a man is or was. It's what he can be that's important. I hope the rest of the town feels that way about it, I'm sure they will, Reverend, about everything. Come on, son. Boyd was now over 60 years old. He still had amazing energy, but instinctively, he knew it was time to call a halt to the hoppy shows. He didn't want it to just dwindle down and dwindle down, just finally disappear. He wanted to leave it at the top and leave that, and it's, it's which is hard to do. I mean, I, I, I don't know too many people who do that, but he did. Well, why don't you ask me? Well, I was going to ask you if you'd stay on at the ranch until I get my cattle shipped. Well, I figured we'd have to stay till Lucky gets well enough to travel. But no longer? Huh? Oh, no. <laughs> See, Lucky? I told you you didn't have to worry about hopping. (laughs) Boyd stopped touring, but he didn't disappear from sight. He still took part in many parades, much to the delight of his fans. (laughs) 
Yes, it is the one and only Hopalong Cassidy. Joyful living? You should have heard this little boy's heartbeat. And as it turned out, it was the timing was right because he always did the New Year's parade. No matter where we were, we got back for that. That must have been uh, the New Year of 60 or something. Because what happened was, three weeks after the parade, Topper went out to his little trailer that he loved. And he loved to travel. He just loved it. He had little portholes he could watch out. And he went out there and went to sleep. And that was it. And he was 26. He was 26 years old, so that's understandable. He said, no more parades. He said, I'll never be on another horse. Because Topper, you could trust and kids, you know, he'd be pulling hairs out of his tail uh, for souvenirs, and he never would move. He never stepped on any kid's foot or something like that. He was a character, that one. And he, there never would be another one, and uh, no. So after Topper went, that was it. Yeah, this time, boy did go quietly into the sunset. You know, in spite of amassing a fortune, he lived by his creed. No more ostentatious mansions in Beverly Hills. They moved to an unpretentious one-bedroom house in Palm Desert. Boyd had built it in the early 1950s as a hideaway from their heavy touring schedule. Boyd lived his last few years quietly. And you know, he really enjoyed making personal appearances at local schools and children's charity events. In 1972, Boyd passed away. Also, Clarence Mulford had died in 1956 at the peak of Hoppy Mania. Mulford was asked shortly before his death if he had any disappointments about how his creation, Hopalong Cassidy, was treated by Boyd. I have a great deal of admiration for William Boyd's accomplishments. Let him have his hop along. I have mine. Both men could only be thrilled that nearly a hundred years after being introduced to the world, Hop Along Cassidy thrives on television and reruns. There is still strong book sales, many fan clubs, annual festivals, even numerous websites. And whatever happened to all that merchandising? Well, everything hoppy, from lunch boxes and cowboy boots to bedroom sets to bikes, is highly collectible. Just check out any auction website. Could Boyd possibly have had any regrets about how Hubble and Cassidy transformed him? Oh, heavens, no. No, no, that's exactly what he wanted to do with his life. Yeah, when I was a little kid, I used to dream, too, about shiny armor and whipping the world. But I guess the only thing me and uh, Galahad ever had in common was our white horses. You have a shining golden armor, too. A brave heart. Well, that's, uh, that's mighty nice of you to say those things, ma'am, but I think you're giving me a lot the best of it. I have a locket that I wore when we traveled so much. We went, It was a St. Christopher. And uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful locket. But on the back, he had etched, Thank you, my darling, for hopping. So, no, so, no, there was no question about how I felt about what he had done with his life. Boyd expressed his appreciation for Hoppy to a group of fans. He said, In 1935, I met a man I admired, Hopalong Cassidy. I became that man. Hoppy is the good side of me, and I want to thank all the kids here and around the world because they're the ones who have made my success possible. For one thing, I want to thank the fans for the love they always had and for you know for the beliefs that they believed in and the ones that he all the values that he stood for and lived for and of course there's a 
is a special place in my heart that's all theirs. Uh, but <laughs> I, I just have a little trouble with that because all I can say is I do. I'm, I'm very thankful. I'm very thankful for it. And, uh, oh God, just bless them all and ask them to take care of each other. What's become of your old pals, Wendy and Lucky? <laughs> They're probably pulling in Silver City about now. They're a great pair. <laughs> you bet. <laughs> Forget him, Hoppy. I'm afraid to. Where do I sit? A piece of your head, please. <laughs> Ink. Joan told me not to touch the darn thing, and I. So you touched it. I touched Fellas, my part of the job is done. I can't tell you how much I appreciate your help. I sort of hoped you'd trail along with me. But since you got other plans, uh, I guess I'll say goodbye. Bye, Happy. Goodbye, Wendy. Bye, old-timer. Good luck, kid. Bye, Lanky. Good girl, finally. I sure wish you fellas was going with me. I got a herd to take down into Mexico. Cassidy's laugh. Now, I don't know another cowboy anywhere on the face of this earth that made, they made sure that Hoppy laughed at least twice. I mean, for sure, in every one of his movies. Ah, 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 like that. He did it. Ah, 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 ah. It was, it was like that. Hey, California, you're upside down. Ah, 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 ah. And then California would laugh. Hey, these were the laughingest cowboys, but they were serious. We had the only television on the block, and all the kids in the neighborhood come over Sunday night to watch Hoppy. Hoppy was my first cowboy hero. And that was the first thing I remember watching on television was Hoppy. One of the kids in the neighborhood was watching a Hoppy movie, and he got in trouble with these gunfighters. And so he was going to help him out. We all had guns, you know, playing cowboy. And he threw his gun in the TV set to give, give Hoppy his gun because Hoplon Cassidy had lost his gun. I feel sorry for today's kids who are raised in an era when wise guyism and cynicism prevails and where there's so little room for just a straightforward dose of uh, goodness. And he had values, and in this day and age, it's hard to find that sometimes. And uh, it inspires faith in America and good, good uh, citizenship and good upstanding moral things. It's really kind of nice. He stood for what was right, you know. And when you watch his movies now, they're good stories. And I think he was kind of a father figure. I mean, you know, with that silver hair, he, you know, he projected an older man. 
And I think a lot of kids must have looked up to him the way they would an idealized father or maybe a favorite uncle or something like that. I remember watching westerns with my dad growing up, and that's one of the reasons why I like this st- kind of stuff, because that was one thing I did with him as a kid. I love his laugh, you know, and he, he's got that certain laugh, you know. I just love that, you know, it really grabbed me as a kid. I think he was about the best cowboy hero out there, not to take away from uh, the others, but he was, maybe it was because he was older or appeared older, he had kind of a fatherly image. Uh, so to a kid like me, uh, that was important. I want to talk about Topper. I want you all to notice every once in a while when you get a chance. Topper, when he when Topper rides out of town, watch Topper's tail. That white tail flows like no other tail. I've watched other horses after watching Topper. There's nothing wrong with me. I'm just telling you. Watch Topper's tail, and you'll see Topper's... Never mind. There's too much information, and you can't handle it. Ah! Ah! Ah!